Okay, morning. You guys hear me? Good. Well, uh, my name is Andrew, as has been said. Um, I serve here at Aerosmith and uh, have the privilege of sharing God's Word with you this morning. Uh, we are studying in Colossians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, and uh, starting in verse 6. I'm not going to read the whole thing out uh, ahead of time. We'll just uh, go through it um, piece by piece here. Uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come uh, as your people in fellowship before you. Lord, we thank you that we can hold your word in our hands, Lord, your eternal, uh, infallible word, Lord, and that is living and active, Lord. And we ask that you would just speak your word to our hearts. May it find good soil and take root and bear much fruit, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. And I just ask that you would help me to speak clearly and give me the strength to um, just proclaim your word, and may it be your words and not mine. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the year was 1821, and after fighting in the Napoleonic Wars and for Venezuelan independence, Scottish soldier Gregor MacGregor, I'm not making that up, came back to Britain claiming to be the cazique or ruler of the Central American country of Poyas, located on the Mosquito Coast in modern-day Honduras. It was a, apparently a fertile and civilized land, with the capital city of St. Joseph having a population of 20,000. Over the next few months in London, he wrote a constitution and established consular offices had songs composed and a book ghostwritten praising the virtues of this promised land. He had a bank underwrite a 2,000 pound loan, which is amazing, a fortune at the time, and he began selling land certificates and poison government bonds at reasonable prices. People jumped at these investment opportunities. By 1822, there were seven ships worth of people who had bought land certificates and wanted to emigrate to start a new life in this promised land. The first ship reached the Honduran coast in November 1822 and the second shortly after. But instead of finding a bustling modern town, what they found was miles of untouched jungle. There was no country of Poyas no civilization, it was a lie, a fraud. They had been conned. And unfortunately, this con was also deadly. The immigrants had inadequate supplies and no skills to survive in the jungle. Of the 250 or so people who sailed to Poyas, only, or about 180 died of disease and malnutrition, and less than 50 people made it back to Britain, their hopes of a new life utterly destroyed. And, of course, unfortunately, in this world, there are people who do make a living in deceiving other people. And in this modern day and age, we live in an increasingly false world. It is harder and harder to tell what is true and what is false. We have fake news. If you're on the social media, we have counterfeit products. We were talking about this in Bible study, how you can 
order something off of Amazon thinking you're getting a brand name product, but no, it's a knockoff that people are trying to pass off as the real thing. There is phishing scams through email or phone that we get hit with all the time. And you know, there's even fake meat burgers. People are, you know, it's all the rage now, right? It's like, why do they make it like as a meat patty if they're trying to, it's not meat. Anyways, if you like that thing, that's cool. And the church is not immune either to this, um, these counterfeits. There's, there are those who go and seek to deceive believers and lead them astray from the true faith in Jesus. And this situation is what was happening with the church in Colossae and why Paul was writing this letter. But he doesn't write and counter the false teaching with going through and saying what's wrong with it. He just goes and points to the supremacy of Jesus. And it really, again, ties into the mission statement of the church to passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. And that's what he does. And so in this passage, he gives seven in him or with him statements. And he has two he has proclamations all about Jesus. And that we don't need anything other than Jesus. We're complete in him. We'll start in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So he starts with a therefore, and always you have to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. And he's linking to the previous passage, where Paul was teaching and praying that the Colossians would fully know Christ, the, the love of Christ, as they loved one another in community, and that they would know Christ's love more and more, and that Paul would rejoice to see their faith lived out. And now he sets up this passage with an exhortation that as you received Christ, so continue. Walk in him. Well, how have we received Christ? Well, we just saw that um, as we read the scripture this morning. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. So Paul goes right back to the gospel and, and anchors his uh, teaching in that. Well, how, how have we received? Well, we've heard the good news of Jesus. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. There's, there's no other way, right? This is how we receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. And we've believed the message, repented of our sins, received Jesus as our Lord, and by grace, through faith, we're saved. And this is how we've come to know Jesus. So why would continuing to know Jesus be any different? Why, why would there be any, any difference in that? We, continue, we start in the gospel, we continue in that. And the term walking has this meaning of how we are conducting oneself, how we live out our faith, 
how we follow after Jesus. In Jesus' time, um, rabbis would have students, and the students would literally follow after the rabbi in absolutely every aspect, literally following in their footsteps. And it's that same thought of how we're walking after Jesus. And Paul goes on and says, it's essential to be rooted in Jesus, and which has a connotation of being grounded in, being um, like a strong foundation. And those who are builders, you know, George, you know how important it is to have a strong foundation for a building. If the foundation's wrong, not much is going to be right with that building. It's all going to be gone, and sometimes you might have to start over again. So it's important to have a strong foundation to build a house. Paul talks about this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So some questions we can ask ourselves. First, are we building on the right foundation? How are we building on the foundation of Jesus? Are we, how are we building our spiritual house? What materials are we using to build it? And when the storms of life and the winds of false teaching assail us, will our house stand? Paul continues in verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul warns the Colossians and us to not be seduced by worldly ideas and teachings, which so easily can creep in and we are surrounded with. This idea of taking captive is is like the idea of plunder, of spoils of war, and really, that's not far off. It's deadly serious. Um, it, there is a war for our souls going on and the souls of our friends and family and neighbors. And so this is serious business. And in Paul's time, in this Colossae, there was people coming into church and promoting some false teachings. Most likely an early form of, of Gnosticism, something like that, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, knowledge, and they was really kind of this mix, mix, mismatch of Eastern ideas, uh, Near East mysticism, Greek philosophy, all kind of swirled together, and um, now they're trying to add Christianity into the mix um, and subtly twist it to fix, fit their lie to make it seem plausible and logical to our fallen human nature, right? And, you know, we can be easily um, taken in by that. They knew how to bait the hook. You know, we love secrets. There's something about our human nature. We We love to have secrets. We love to know more than others. And so they, they kind of capitalized on that, promising hidden levels of knowledge and if you keep following, more will be revealed. They always kept kind of baiting it that more would be revealed. Of course, at the end, um, if you kept following it, there would be no hidden secrets. There would be nothing at the end. Again, it was a fraud. 
And in this day and age of so much information, it's hard to sort out what is false and what is true. In the previous passage, Colossians 2.3, we see that all wisdom and knowledge reside in Jesus. He knows it all. There is nothing that Jesus doesn't know. And so, really, if we desire wisdom and knowledge, if that's our desire, we should desire to know Jesus more. He is where all wisdom and knowledge is found. We don't need to go elsewhere. He, we, are, we have complete knowledge in him. There's something, though, in our natures also that we love what is new, what is novel, right? Newer equals better. Um, it's just part of our nature. And we, we just love shiny and new. But when it comes to God, when it comes to spiritual truth, Really, we don't need a revelation of a new spiritual truth, but we need God's revealed truth to newly impact our hearts. God has already given us everything for life and godliness, we read in 2 Peter 1.3. So how do we guard against falling captive to error? Well, the answer is to know the truth more. Go back to the truth. We love to tell the story, uh, again, sharing this in, in Bible study. Uh, our previous pastor's wife uh, worked as a bank teller for a while. And how they would be trained, she said, to guard against counterfeit bills is not to study the counterfeit bills, because they could be all kinds of different things. But what they d- trained them to do is to study and memorize the true bills Every part of it, every aspect of it, know it so well. So when the counterfeit bill came, they would be able to instantly spot it. And we need to do that with the thoughts and ideas that um, we, we see and hear and run it through the grid of Scripture and compare it to the grid of Scripture and know Scripture so well that we can spot the lie much more easily. Verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul is again refuting some Gnostic beliefs and teachings with this. Again, points to the truth of Jesus and, and his very nature. Gnosticism, one stream of it, it there wasn't really one cohesive you know, it was kind of all over the place, as the teachings of men often are, very confused. You look at people today, right? One, on one side, they'd be, you know, proposing this, and the other side, it completely, you know, negates that. But both are held up as true. So, again, one aspect that they taught was there was this battle between good and evil, the forces of good and evil equally matched, and that all matter was evil. All, anything material was evil. And that only the spiritual, only the, the things that were spiritual were good. And so one, one thought, um, one stream believed that, well, Jesus being good, he couldn't have come in the flesh if he's God. He couldn't have really come in the flesh because flesh was evil. And so he must have only been a spirit. Or the other, on the other side, which is more popular today probably, 
that he was just an enlightened man who came to share this secret knowledge, right? Again, promoting this Gnosticism. And, and that's really, he, he just had more knowledge, and he was just came to share that. Of course, neither are true. A core Christian doctrine is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, has the term hypostatic union. We believe Jesus, who is God, the Son, took on flesh to be like us, yet was without sin to be the perfect spotless lamb, to die for our sins on the cross, and in his power to rise again, defeating sin and death. Hebrews 2, 17 and 4.15 talk about this. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And Paul goes on. What's more amazing is the God of the universe who fills Jesus also fills us. He's the the creator God living in us. And in him we are complete. And it's it's a complete and being made complete. He will complete his good work in us. Thank the Lord. And this, this, these two verses are kind of the, like the hinge verses of the passage, really showing the completeness we have in Jesus. And we need nothing other than Jesus. And we can't add or subtract to Jesus. He, he is all in all. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so Paul's, there's another teaching that was also um, seemed to be coming to this church in Colossae, and he deals with it elsewhere um, in, in different of his letters. And this is the idea of Judaistic legalism. So Jewish believers who taught that Christians, especially Gentile Christians, must additionally follow all the Old Testament laws to be truly followers of Christ. And they especially made a big deal about circumcision of Gentile converts. Now, circumcision was originally assigned to the nation of Israel to be set apart for God to be his holy people. It symbolized purity, holiness, and grace. And so Paul says we are spiritually circumcised in Jesus and really points uh, a lot to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit purifies our hearts, convicts us of sin, and empowers us to resist it. Through the Holy Spirit living in us, we are made holy, set apart for him. And we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of God's blessing and favor that we have the future of heaven with him to look forward to. And so we're warned to not fall into legalism because no outward observance can bring an inward change. No human effort can add on to Jesus' work of salvation. He's done it all. All we can do is just say thank you. Verse 12. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. So Paul, in this passage, shows how baptism symbolizes and parallels Jesus's death and resurrection. Water was a symbol of death, especially to the first century um, Jews and Christians. Water just had the symbolization of death and the grave. And so going under the water is the death of our old sinful nature, the death of the old man. And Jesus' death on the cross also put to death the penalty of sin and the power of sin over us. And rising up from the water, of course, symbolizes Jesus rising from the grave to a new life, the resurrected life. And the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus is also working in us, of course, giving us new life in Christ. We were completely spiritually dead in our sins. We could not do anything for our salvation. We are corrupted, alienated from God and under his wrath. But when we we repent and believe by faith in Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sin, in his mercy and grace, God forgives us, cleanses us, and makes us spiritually alive now in him. And we also have eternal life right now in Jesus and will share in his resurrected nature in heaven. One day we will have new glorified bodies and live forever with Jesus. Amen. Verse 14. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul ends this passage with two he has statements. Again, um, showing the supremacy and power of Jesus and that we, he's done everything. We are complete in him. And he closes his case like a legal case. The first is the declaration that Jesus has paid our sin debt on the cross. The images of a legal notice of debt demanding payment. And it would usually be nailed to the debtor's door. Anyone who's gone through debt collection would understand this reference. In this case, the debt is our sin, and the payment is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And to kind of continue and flesh out this image, um, you know, Jesus instead takes this notice of debt, and it's like he holds it in his hand as he's nailed to the cross. And instead of being nailed to the door, it's nailed to the cross. And as his precious blood spills over the paper, it spells out the words, paid in full. That's what Jesus has done for us. This is what the cross means. He has paid our debts of sin because of his great love for us 
and desire of relationship with us. He's perfectly fulfilled every requirement of the law that we never could. The law is good. It was given to train a people in God's holy standards, but ultimately point to Jesus because we could never keep those standards. And so the law need not have any more power over us. We are not under judgment of the law anymore. Jesus has paid that in full. All the wrath that was to be poured on us, he took upon himself. And again, the law is still good. We want to obey God's commandments out of love and to please him. But we do it out of love and not out of fear because of how much Jesus has loved us. We'll finish off in verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And just as we need not fear the punishment of the law, we need not fear any demonic or evil power either. Jesus has triumphed over them as well. You know, Satan and his demons, they thought that the cross would be the end of Jesus. They thought they'd won. But it was totally the opposite. It was actually the greatest victory that has ever been and will be. God wasn't surprised. He wasn't caught unawares. This was his plan all along. And when Jesus rose after three days those evil powers were completely nullified, completely defeated. Now they can still cause trouble. Jesus lets them have a limited power for a while in this earth, and they can still rile up some trouble in our lives and in the church. But ultimately, Jesus stands in victory over them. It's not an even battle. It's not by any stretch. Jesus has won. He has the victory He's infinitely greater. And so we, as we face battles in our lives, we have the confidence that we can stand in his mighty strength, putting on his spiritual armor and overcoming with the weapons of his word and prayer. So in conclusion, we look to Jesus, who is our strong foundation. We can completely trust in him and build our lives on him. Jesus is the source of all true wisdom and knowledge. We don't need to go anywhere else. All we need to know is complete in him. Jesus has completely finished the work of salvation on the cross. We are complete in him. Jesus has completely defeated the power of sin and death, and we are complete in him. Jesus completely fulfilled the law and has taken its punishment for us, and we are complete in him. And Jesus has completely triumphed over evil. And we can completely triumph in his name. And this completeness, completeness again, is, is a now and a not yet. We're positionally complete, but practically, Jesus is working that out in our lives by his Holy Spirit. But we have the confidence that he will complete his good work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for 
his amazing work on the cross, Lord, as, especially as we go into this communion time, Lord. Make that even more real to our hearts, Lord, and, and work in our hearts, Lord, um, through your Holy Spirit. And just seal these things to our hearts. Lord, let us know the riches and um, joy and peace that we have through Jesus, Lord, that you've done everything for us. Lord, we just need to accept by faith. And you, you do everything. Lord, help us to live out our faith. Lord, help us to love you and love others deeper. Lord, change us, transform us, we pray. And help us to walk in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.